The views and opinions expressed by hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the views of the Global Liberty Alliance, its network, sponsors, donors, or broadcast platforms. The Global Liberty Alliance provides this podcast for informational purposes. Freedom of speech is a fundamental right and essential for free societies to prosper. Thank you for listening and supporting the mission of the Global Liberty Alliance, dedicated to strengthening and defending fundamental individual rights, free markets, and the rule of law. And welcome to the Global Liberty Alliance podcast, fellow Liberty Warriors. This is your host, Jason Poblet. I hope you're doing well. This is our first show of the new year. Uh, we're glad you're with us. We hope you had a great holiday. Merry Christmas, uh, whatever you're celebrating this time of year. Today, we're coming to you. Today, I'm not, I'm not in Virginia this time. I'm back in Florida again, back on Florida Space Coast. We'll be here for a few more weeks working on some cases, doing some work with folks in Latin America, and just connecting with fellow lawyers and fellow human rights activists. Today, we're going to talk with a award-winning journalist and author, Michaela Rong. She's uh, joining us today from the UK. She's done a lot of work in a space that we need to study, I believe, for some of the work that we do and want to continue doing in international uh, criminal justice and accountability projects. Uh, over at the National Review, uh, Jay Nordlinger writes about her and calls her one of the most admired Africa correspondents in the world. Uh, although before she uh, became an Africa expert, uh, she spent quite a bit working in Rome, in Paris. I think she spent time working for Reuters. Uh, she's covered things like the Cannes Film Festival, uh, fashion in Paris, even has covered the Holy See in Rome, uh, spent some time also with the Financial Times. Um, she's written several books. I'm going to provide all uh, the links uh, on the show notes, so be sure to, to take a look. I think you're going to learn a lot uh, from her writing. Uh, she writes extremely well, and it's a pleasure to go through it because it's not as if I have to work very hard to read, and which is also, which means uh, she's doing a great job writing. So anyhow, Michaela, welcome to our podcast. Happy New Year. Um, Happy New Year. And thank you very much for that sales pitch. That's great. <laughs> well, it's, it's great. It's great writing. And um, it's <laughs> um, when, when you have to unpack very difficult subjects like these, um, it's great to be able to read uh, someone who you can tell enjoys it and has, has taken time to... Um, kind of digest it and provide it in a way to make it accessible to to people. So uh, thank you for doing that and welcome. Welcome to our podcast. And I hope you're doing well. How, how are things with uh, with you? How, how's the new year coming? Uh, well, it's it's a, quite a grim time here in the UK where strike hit, uh, okay. flu hit, uh, still COVID lingering around the edges. So there's a there's a bit of a sense of crisis here, mm. but, but we're used to that. <laughs> <laughs> We'll just battle on. You should see how we're going. You know, we started the year off with a with a bang. You know, our Congress is up there trying to figure out who's going to be speaker. So, what can I tell you? It's uh, yes, never, I've seen that. <laughs> never, never a dull moment. So, uh, today we're going to talk, folks, about a topic that's very difficult, I guess, for some folks to talk about. But for for lawyers in the human rights space and journalists who 
in my opinion, are invaluable allies in this process and folks that we must work with uh, when we when we do international human rights work. Um, it, it, it's a topic I feel that doesn't get as much mainstream coverage as it should. And as Americans, those of us here in the state who, who contribute to these programs, uh, we, we sometimes ask our policymakers, you know, why should we do this? And we're going to answer that question at the end of the show. But right now we're going to talk to Michaela, who's done a lot of work in this space uh, about this. And let's start off with storytelling and advocacy. You work a lot with lawyers. Well, tell, before we do that, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be the a, a guru in Africa. <laughs> I'm not sure I would use that word, but um, I have written a lot about Africa and it was really by happenstance. Um, I left university. I went to Cambridge. I went to, into Reuters news agency. Um, I'm half Italian, half British. So I spoke Italian, French and some Spanish and Reuters news agency wants people with languages. So I was there for about nine years. And as you mentioned, I worked in, in Italy for a while. I spent longer in, in France. I went on assignments to Kurdistan, to Romania. Um, uh, it, it was a very, very interesting time to be at a news agency. And, you know, the great thing about news agency journalists is you, you have to do a bit of everything. Mm. Um, my last posting for Reuters was in Cote d'Ivoire and Abidjan. Then I went into newspapers and that didn't work out for me. So I went back to Reuters and said, do you have any freelance jobs, uh, any stringers jobs uh, going in Africa? I'd like to go back. Um, and, and they had an opening in Kinshasa in what was then known as Zaire. Um, and now, it's, of course, it's called Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, and I really didn't want to go there because I've never <laughs> been there. And it was kind of frightening. It was in the uh, the last years of Mobutu Sese Seko, that, the, the dictator there. And they'd been sort of pillaging and rioting by the army. Um, so I asked them if they had anywhere else. And they said, no, 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 that's the only opening. So I went off there and became a freelancer for the BBC and for Reuters. And really loved it, uh, loved being there, loved the independence of being a, a, a freelancer and then jumped from there into uh, the Financial Times newspaper and became the Africa correspondent. And as a result of that rather strange uh, itinerary, I've ended up nearly, it's nearly 30 years now that I've been writing and reporting on Africa. And people tend to assume that, you know, you've got some sort of family link, that you, maybe your family <laughs> was, was colonial, you know, uh, and you, you were brought up with that inheritance. And I, and I really wasn't. It was just something that came across uh, my desk. It was the next stage in my career. And then I stuck at it because what I realized is that um, there's so few people who do know anything about Africa. It is so undercovered, underreported on, um, and that, you know, anything you have to say is often fresh. Uh, and, and there's a directness about the relationship between being a journalist or, or a writer um, and your subject matter, because you've not got layers and layers of press spokesmen and press releases and departments and media sort of <laughs> uh, uh, companies and PR people to go through. You either see it or you don't. You either interview someone or you don't. And that's very refreshing for a journalist. So before we jump to Africa, how... What were you doing in Kurdistan back then? Oh, that was um, back when uh, Saddam Hussein had um, had uh, just launched a blitz okay. on the Kurds. 
you know, he was still a strong man. Uh, this was before the second Iraqi war in Iraq and before, you know, September 11th. And um, and he had blitzed the, the, the Kurdish area of, of northern Iraq and all those Kurds had just fled into the mountains and mm -hmm. then spilled over into Turkey and were living in some really, really squalid, huge refugee camps on the mountain um, tops. Uh, and it was a massive humanitarian crisis. And um, and so, you know, I was one of many journalists who flew there. I went there from Paris and just spent a long time tramping around in, in the mountains, sort of jumping out of helicopters and, and tracking what was this huge humanitarian issue. How, you know, how do, do you deal with all these people who suddenly, you know, have, have left their homes and are camping in tents in freezing conditions? That that must have been an eye opener, I guess, to see. Uh, yeah, it was. It, it, it's an incredibly beautiful part of the world. Those Turkish, uh, Kurdish mountains. Yeah. Um, uh, it, it was my first experience of refugee camps. I was in my thirties. I was still a young journalist. I lost a lot of weight. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think it may it maybe gave me the bug for doing a re reportage in slightly sort of riskier areas okay. um, because you felt it, you know, it mattered and it made a difference. You know, uh, you talk about wrong areas. I'm going to jump to Rwanda now. It don't make sense why I'm doing this, but you, you talked about Africa. Uh, I've read some of your pieces and, and in one place you summarized pretty succinctly that Africa is poor because it has poor leadership. And we have these images that are painted in, you know, in, in our minds by watching newscasts and, and we only see one part of Africa. We don't see the good stuff of Africa. Just like with Kurdistan, most, you know, most people don't follow that. They don't know what the refugee crises were like and, or things that are happening now in Eritrea and Ethiopia. I've got places you've been and, 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 and have seen. Um, what is it with Africa that beyond the corruption, beyond is, is it is it beyond the corruption is it that just is that the issue that parts of africa have this struggle or this reputation of just being poor and bad places to do business and things like that i i think there's so many factors and you know people are constantly writing about this you know one is the legacy of the slave trade if you if you really want to look at the the big picture is the legacy of the slave trade uh, it's also the way colonialism split up um split up the continent in all these kind of um chunks that mm. really didn't match up with with languages or or ethnic differences and i think you know what i came to the conclusion because i did end up writing just as i've written quite a lot about justice i've also written a lot about corruption because i was living in zaire and then later in kenya which is also an extremely corrupt country and what i realized is corruption is not about money it's about ethnicity and national identity because mm. um you you only um you only act as an upright citizen um if if you feel that your rights are defended uh that you know the state represents your interests protects your interests and if you are growing up in a, in a country which which barely has a kind of coherence so its coherence is very very recent it's not sense of national identity is recently imposed um you know a lot of these countries only came into existence in the 1960s and late 1950s um you're not going to feel that the state represents you, you know, you're going to feel your community represents you and that your loyalty is to your community. And that then makes it, 
you know, gives you free reign, a sort of feeling that, you know, if you're a minister and you're appointing people from your ethnic community or from your village and you're sort of doing a bit of pork barrel politicking uh, and there's a lot of leakage going on in your ministerial budget, it's not, you don't feel that same sense of sort of, um, you know, guilt that maybe, you know, in France or Italy or, or Britain you might feel because you're doing it for your community. You're, mm. you know, you're getting them the share of the spoils. You know, uh, my, one of my books is called It's Our Turn to Eat. And I, I use that title because I heard it all the time in East Africa. It's our turn to eat. And, it, and that's the sort of vision, really, of the sort of state budget as this buffet. And, you know, someone else has been digging into the buffet all these years. And then suddenly your guy gets to be president or your guy gets to be minister. And it's kind of like it's our turn at the buffet. You know, why why the hell shouldn't we just gorge ourselves? Because <laughs> those, those other people who've been eating all, all this time, they never shared it around. So I ended up really feeling corruption was all about identity. And, and that for me was a kind of breakthrough moment. Yeah, I agree with you that corruption is um it's that's for those for, for lawyers especially i mean we we see it um frankly depending on the country you're in it may or may not be corruption right uh but but you see it and it's a real tough issue to grapple with and the more you have it i think i don't know if you would agree with this or not but would you say that the more corruption there is in a society the higher the odds are that bad things can happen like the subject matter we're talking about now, Rwanda, that we're going to talk about in a minute. Yeah, because as I said, I think it is about identity, and 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 you know the most basic form in which identity can express itself is 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 a violent form. And you know if you if you feel that your community, whether it's an ethnic community or linguistic community or religious community, is being you know, sidestep when it comes to investment or jobs or opportunities in education. Um, eventually, you know, that that sense of marginalization will boil up in, in a violent fashion, often, you know, in the run up to an election, um, because you, you feel I've got nothing to lose. You know, the system isn't working for me. This is a system that's rigged against me and my community. So I think it's all part of a package of, of feeling alienated and marginalized. Uh, and, and therefore, when people behave badly, it's not that surprising. You wrote in a piece and we'll share the link, folks, um, titled Where the International Justice System Fails, um, that the credibility of the international justice system depends on its ability to not only convict, but to be fair toward those who are acquitted, released early, or who have been have completed their prison terms you, you, you're talking about this and about the, we're, we're going to unpack all of this now folks so but but i want to talk use this moment to talk a little bit about corruption and the international system that when you judge people whether if it's in a court of law in a domestic court or international court you those those of us who engage in this world we want to make sure the system's being impartial and everyone's you know you're meeting out proper justice the right people are being locked up that sort of thing wrong people are not going to jail that there's some justice and accountability happening when you say the international justice system fails in the context of Rwanda, which we're going to talk about in a moment, do you think the international system is also broken and corrupt? And is there something that's dragging the justice system down because of it, because of the corruption? Same thing, not, not to the nation state, but talking more about the international system itself. 
Uh, yes, so um, back in the 1990s, I guess I was um, uh, getting very interested in, this, in the, this whole principle of international justice because a lot of the human rights organizations like uh, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty were talking about the problem of impunity in areas like the Great Lakes. And they were sort of saying there's this horrible cycle in which, uh, you know, one community uh, does the most terrible things to others. There's massacres, ethnic cleansing, genocides, and then no one is ever brought to book. And if you don't ever bring people to book and people know they'll never be brought to book, um, uh, what you set in, in train is this, this, this whole um, uh, uh, feeling of, of grievance and that eventually expresses itself in revenge killings and revenge ethnic cleansing and revenge genocides. So I had a lot of sympathy for that argument, but, but then as the years have gone by and I've seen those international tribunals at work, you know, whether uh, it's been members of Lord's Resistance Army in Uganda being tried before the International Criminal Court in The Hague, or whether it's been in Rwanda, you know, people being tried between uh, before in Arusha before the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, um, or, or, or um, uh, you know, or the arbitration that you see uh, taking place in The Hague between countries that have gone to war like Eritrea and Ethiopia to decide where the border lies. In each case, I've just ended up coming away from it and thinking, this is this is not only not working; it's possibly making things worse. Um, uh, you know, that because you can see that that the justice that was promised is not being delivered. It's taking too long. It's too expensive. It's not often the rulings then are not being respected on the ground by by the belligerent countries. In the case of the Boundaries uh, Commission, um, and and this is actually just building another layer of, of grievance, only it's a layer of grievance that's got the blessing of the international community. So then the international community becomes complicit. Um, so I think there are definitely exceptions to this. I think there are hybrid court at, at hybrid courts, ad hoc courts that, that have, have delivered, but there are a lot of very disappointing cases and I'm very happy to explore those yeah, with you. Yeah, yeah. I, I, the NGOs, by the way, and, and, and you're right, uh, there's the whole constellation of NGOs that spend time working on human rights work. And um, we hear this also from donors. He goes, guys, I've been hearing about this for 30 years. Nothing seems to get better, right? So even people on the outside who support you, they ask those very questions. And 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 some of the things you're saying there are things that we've, we've also told uh, not only donors, but... Uh, uh, U.S. policymakers who are supposed to be taking a close look at this. In that article, because I found it a fascinating read, we're, we're going to start, folks, back and then work toward the... Toward, uh, we're first going to start at the end of this story. Well, not the end yet, but where it's at now, and then talk a little bit about uh, the Rwanda genocide, which is plenty out there. We're not going to rehash all of it, but we're going to get some context to it, because this particular article begins with um, a fellow called Therese... Uh, Mvunyi, who was accused and found guilty of uh, war crimes, genocide, and he and a group of fellow uh, uh, accused individuals are out there in this legal, almost like this legal limbo. Um, for folks who don't know what happened in Rwanda, we, we don't have a lot of time, so can you give them a nutshell about how a place that today we call 
you know, the Switzerland of, uh, of Africa, if you will, the land of a thousand hills uh, has gone from when has become that. But what was happening not too long ago? And then we'll talk about this case and the others that you wrote about. Sure. Um, the interesting thing about Rwanda is it was known as the Switzerland of Africa back in the 1990s when it mm -hmm. was being run by a Hutu, a member of the Hutu majority community, Juvenile Habyarimana, the president, who mm -hmm. the former military man. Um, and he uh, uh, was experiencing a rebel incursion from Uganda run by Paul Kagame, uh, a rebel movement run by Paul Kagame, who is the president today, who was a member of the minority Tutsis. Um, and um, they, um, the rebel movement, the RPF, Rwandan Patriotic Front, and Juvenile Habyarimana's government were negotiating in Arusha. There were peace talks to try and reach some kind of settlement. Um, uh, and uh, as um, uh, Habyarimana was returning from these peace talks one day, one evening, his plane was shot out of the sky. And there's always been a lot of mystery mm. um, about who fired the missile that brought down the plane. And this is something that will probably come up later. Um, he died. Um, the Burundian president, also traveling with him, died. And that sort of triggered the uh, genocide of 1994 uh, when... Uh, members of uh, the the army, uh, Habyarimana's army, and also uh, the members of these Hutu ethnic militias that had been formed because there was this sort of toxic climate of uh, of, uh, of uh, uh, paranoia and suspicion towards Tutsis, uh, members of the Tutsi community, but also people who were perceived as possible infiltrators from the by the RPF, uh, and so. Uh, they were being slaughtered on the street. Uh, members, uh, Tutsi civilians, were being slaughtered by the militias and the army. And you know, the the figures are constantly disputed. But maybe between half a million and a, and a million people died. Mm. Um, and uh, by the time that killing was over, the Rwandan Patriotic Front had seized control of the country. Uh, and very, very soon after, um, uh, they they seized control of the country. Uh, uh, and the members of Javier Imana's uh, government fled the country um, uh, and they were helped in some cases to evacuate by the French who were very close to Javier Imana. Um, there was there were calls in the international community which felt appalled by the uh, genocide, although it had done nothing to intervene and stop it. Um, uh, there were calls for an international tribunal to be set up. Uh, and it was eventually set up in, in Arusha in Tanzania. And uh, people started to be, um, you know, key members of Javier Imana's army and his government uh, started to be arrested in the countries where they had fled and extradited to Arusha to face trial. Um, and of course, all of that was happening, you know, they were mostly being arrested in the 1990s and there was a very long laborious process in which their cases were prepared. Um, uh, they were convicted. Um, some of them got off uh, scot-free because they, they hadn't actually been in the country when, when the genocide was happening. There was no sign that they played a role in, 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 in organizing it or, or fermenting it. Others got really heavy um, prison sentences. Uh, including Tharsis Muvunyi, who you were talking about, who was a police com a commander in in, uh, in Butare, a, a big town in in central Rwanda, um, and um, uh, then you know they served their time. So, uh, mostly, they served their time in Arusha. The problem came that the uh, in 2016, 
the criminal tribunal in Arusha closed down and the Tanzanian government, which had been hosting, you know, had allowed the UN to set up a prison there uh, and a safe house for people who are coming out of the prison after serving their time, said these guys have to go. And at that stage, there were nine of them and they were ex-government ministers, they were former police chiefs, they were former army commanders, um, former businessmen, uh, a the former brother-in-law of mm. Habi Arimana, a very prominent businessman. Um, and they were being told, uh, they were all living in a in a house, in a safe house in Arusha, and they were told, you can, you can go back home now to Rwanda, or, or you have to leave. Uh, and the problem is none of them want to go back home to Rwanda because um, they do not expect, and I think they've got every reason to believe this, they do not think that they would get um, uh, treated, that their, their sentences would be recognized by the Rwandan authorities. The Rwandans have, uh, were very hostile always to the, the criminal tribunal. Um, they felt that the, the, the sentences were far too light. Um, uh, they sort of had a, they, they played a very sort of underhand and sabotaging role in the running of that, that uh, whole uh, um, court. And many people feel that it's just an expression of victor's justice. Hmm. Um, so so those, those men felt that if they went back to Rwanda, uh, they would probably end up facing a second trial um, and you know, spend the rest of their lives in detention, or they thought that they, it was quite likely they they would be quietly bumped off because the government in Rwanda, despite the fact that it's hailed as a Switzerland of Africa, has got this track record of eliminating um, high-profile people that it sees as uh, challengers um, or dissidents, they, uh, including human rights activists, political dissidents, um, and journalists. So they were terrified and they didn't want to go home. And they were saying to the UN, we don't want to go back to Rwanda. It says it, we would be welcome home, but we're, there's no way we're going home. We have family in the West, in Belgium, in France, in Canada, in America, in the UK. We want to join them. And the trouble is those countries were not going to take them. Uh, so eventually the UN came up with this sort of miracle solution, it sounded like. Uh, and this was uh, 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 about 13 months ago, basically. Um, of um, transferring them to Niger in West Africa, where it had brokered um, a deal with the Niger government and um, had agreed that it would, um, uh, the Niger would uh, give them a house in which they could settle, it would give them residence permits, this would allow them to resume normal lives. These are eight men who are between the ages of 69 and 84. Um, you know, they're towards the end of their lives. Um, they they want to sort of live out their days and be able to see their families, um, uh, and they they just need to have sort of papers and be sort of allowed to, you know, they've done their time. They've either been acquitted, uh, originally acquitted, or they've served out their prison terms. Um, so everything seemed to be hunky dory. And then what happened um, uh, in December? Uh, uh, not. 2022, but December 2021, is the Rwandan government objected to this whole arrangement at Go the figure. UN Council. <laughs> yeah, and said, but hang on, these guys are very welcome home. Why don't they come back home? Uh, that's always been our position. And we never agreed to this. And a, the Niger government claims um, that the UN had, uh, the UN 
registrar who deals who has been dealing with these uh, he's the head of the residual mechanism dealing with criminal tribunals the Niger government said but we were told that the uh, the Rwandans were in favor of this arrangement and that they were cool with it in fact they they welcomed it um and so the Niger government became very annoyed and said well these guys have to leave you know we'll we'll send them back to Rwanda which of course is the one place they don't want to go so suddenly the UN was in this quandary. The men were suddenly under armed guard in a safe house in the middle of Niamey, the Niger capital. Uh, and what what I, I find extraordinary is they've been there ever since. Um, so, so, and it, let's, so, so, sorry to interrupt you, but let me ask you about just briefly about that. Um, I know some of my listeners are probably thinking, why should we even care about these guys? They've been they've, they've been found guilty of genocide. Why should we well, bother? Well, if you believe in the legal system, and, and believe me, I share that instinct. If you believe in a legal system and you think it works and you think mm. that they got justice and they did go through an extremely expensive <laughs> legal process. Very expensive, by the way. Very yes. expensive. I think it was $1.3 billion that was spent on trying 69 people. That's right. um, you know, and they had the best... Uh, defense and the best prosecution and um, if you believe in that system and that system matters to you you also have to accept uh, that a, a that that system produces acquittals occasionally mm. because if if we only believe that people who you know if we believe that only there would only ever be acquittals um, sorry if we believed that anyone who appears in front of a international uh, criminal That's court right must always be found guilty mm -hmm. then that rather sort of um eviscerates the purpose it. right yeah well. yes it's sort of like that's not the point of justice you're supposed to be innocent till proven you have to prove your case mm. um but the other thing is you know do you believe that a prison term once completed you know that someone has purged their debt to society mm. um that there is a meaning to that prison term um, uh, or do you really think that once they're prosecuted, they, they're guilty for the rest of their days and should not ever retain any, you know, citizen's rights, should never be treated like a normal uh, member of society again? And I think most of us would say, no, there has to be a concept of purging your debt to society and a, and a possibility of redemption um, uh, and that we as a society believe in in um, in forgiveness. Um, uh, and, and so, you know, you, yes, you're found guilty of, of a heinous, you know, horrible crime, but you are not then guilty until the day of your death. And it's, what it seemed to me is this case in Niger seems to suggest that, in fact, the UN system is so designed because it's not particularly interested in, in what happens to these guys down the line. It could also be women, but in this case it isn't. You know, because there's not much interest in it, not much investment in it, and these guys are not media friendly. You know, it's very hard to take take up cudgels on their behalf if you're a journalist. You know that that really um, they can just be left to rot hmm. in in a safe house in in Yame. and that seems to me that you know there's there's something very very deeply wrong about that as a principle. You know, something that. God, you said so much. Uh, where do I go? Where do I begin? Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, this is good stuff. So we're talking to Michaela Wrong, award-winning journalist and author about international criminal justice. 
and rule of law matters, human rights. And we just kind of unpacked a lot of Rwanda genocide history in eight minutes. And <laughs> but that's good though, because I, I wanted to ask you a few questions and go back to Mavunya and, and this and this group of of of, of accused. Um, frankly, some, they've been accused of pretty bad bad acts. I mean, I've read the file on some of these, and if the process was good, if it was a good process, then they received a, a punishment uh, that they. Yeah, they maybe received a light punishment, frankly, for uh, in some cultures for what they did, well, if, if that's yeah, accurate. Yes. And, and, I, and, and you need to qualify that four of them were acquitted. Exactly. So, four of them you were, know, there are eight men and four of them were acquitted. So yeah. what's the meaning of acquittal if effectively it, you just move from one safe house to another and can't go out? There isn't. And, and that when we're talking about their lifestyle in one second. But for folks, remember this. When we're talking about genocide and what happened in Rwanda, for those of you too young to know, about 800,000 plus people were slaughtered and there was a lot of displacement of others as well. And the number counts, depending on who you ask, could be higher. Some people claim it's lower, but generally speaking, more than half a million, 800,000 people were slaughtered. It was a horrific uh, black mark on human history and uh, one that we have to learn from, which is why we talk about these things. You just cannot forget about them. And that's why we have folks like Michaela who write about him, care about it, and uh, want to see justice done. So it's important that we have mechanisms, we think, to deal with these. But I'm always very skeptical about anything that comes out of the international system in the sense that there's so many inefficiencies in it already. And when you read the, the trial procedure and certain things that happen in these cases, it makes me wonder if there really was justice so back mm. in Rwanda what do the people generally think about that process was it true transitional justice or was it an international experiment for Ivy League lawyers and and think tanks to get together and NGOs to cobble together this process that may or may not have delivered what it promised I mean what do the I, people think I think how they feel about that that court, um, in Arusha is going to depend on their ethnicity, whether they belong to the Hutu community or the Tutsi community, the minority community, you know, the community from mm. which much of the ruling elite uh, comes. Um, because um, this, is, this is sort of one of the, the really integral problems with that court is that, of course, when it was set up, it was going to uh, deliver justice for all. Uh, but there was massive international community sympathy for the Rwandan Patriotic Front and uh, for um, a narrative that they, you know, that they embraced and that they projected, which is uh, the Tutsi community, the Tutsi minority have come close to extinction at the hands of the Hutu majority, Hutu army, Hutu militiamen, um, and we have stopped the killing. You know, we mm. are the saviors. We are, we are, we have come in cantering on our white horse and have stopped it all, thank God. And none of you did anything. None of you in the international community did anything. The problem is that um, uh, it was uh, always clear fairly early on, but has become ever clearer with passing decades that the RPF also committed massive 
war crimes of their own, both of the, as they were advancing across the country. It wasn't very well known at the time when I was a journalist covering it. I was completely unaware of these, these uh, ethnic cleansing, these massacres. Uh, it began to be more and more uh, something people were more and more aware of with the passage of the years. Um, uh, uh, finally, there was um, a whole second leg of atrocities and ethnic cleansing that took place in uh, Democratic Republic of Congo that was carried out by the new Rwandan army, which was basically set up by the RPF. So what you have is a narrative that is very, very simple that then becomes much more complicated when you actually um, consider that the that you know the the government that the the court was collaborating with uh, in terms of collecting evidence, flying witnesses out to Arusha, um, getting their support for the whole process is deeply, deeply um, uh, embedded mm. uh, in uh, war crimes and atrocities of its own and is determined that they, those will not be uh, investigated. And uh, one of the key uh, incidents, uh, of course, is uh, the question of who brought down the plane on which Habyar Imana, the president, was traveling. Uh, because the RPF had always said this was Hutu extremists who uh, uh, were not happy with the peace deal that Habyar Imana had reached in Arusha, killing their own champion uh, because they just didn't want to compromise. Uh, but uh, ever since, there have been people within the RPF, dissidents who have uh, uh, abandoned the, the, the movement, fled abroad, and they've been saying, no, we did it. The RPF brought down the plane. It was on Kagame's orders. Hmm. Uh, so you have a trigger incident that that triggered all these atrocities that may uh, have been committed by the RPF itself. Um, uh, and then what you see is you see the International Criminal Court in Arusha and its chief prosecutors um, uh, who originally had always planned that they would start focusing on the masterminds or uh, within the Hutu administration, uh, the people who, who were, you know, commanding the extremist militias or, or key posts in the army or funding the, the militias uh, and focus on them. And then once, you know, those key prosecutions were underway, they would also then turn to the question of who brought down the plane and also the question of RPF uh, war crimes. And that second leg never happened. And it, mm. it was made impossible. And we know this from the testimony of uh, ICTR investigators. We know this from what the chief prosecutor, Carla Del Ponte, has said in a book she published, that it was made very clear to uh, the people, the chief prosecutors and the ICT ICTR staff, that if they were to start investigating the RPF, uh, there would be no more collaboration with the Rwandans. So, so the accusations that the court represents Victor's justice, which is an accusation that is constantly leveled at it by the Hutu community, uh, has a lot of validity to it. Um, and I think, you know, you have to look at, uh, at it in that light, uh, mm. which is that it, it's seen as a biased court that has delivered a series of, of, of verdicts um, uh, which may or may not have been thoroughly merited given that an awful lot of people died. Um, but that it has given uh, one-sided, it has delivered one-sided justice. The fact that it's, I think, and I agree with you, I think it has delivered one-sided justice and just a review of the record will show you that. And for my fellow lawyers who do this sort of work uh, and 
just for human rights activists also and policymakers. You know, there's this whole movement here in the States, Michaela, I'm sure you've, you've heard about it, uh, of uh, through this office at the State Department, uh, Global Criminal Justice Office, about holding Russia to account uh, for what it may or may not have done in the Ukraine conflict. In my opinion, there's war crimes happening on both sides. Uh, I don't think Zelensky comes to this with clean hands. And we're doing a disservice to international criminal justice by not only create creating a process that's going to lead to a victor's a victor's control process potentially but um you know these decisions impact uh other projects that could be coming down the pike do you think the international criminal justice process is too politicized can it be removed can it can it be removed from politics i don't think it can some of this but can can you remove this from politics because lawyers sometimes think you can law your way out of everything and i don't think you can yeah i mean it was very interesting with the ictr that the american um government um did play quite a big role in in sort of allowing it to become victor's justice hmm. uh, and carla del ponte has talked about you know the failure to support her when she um, tried to set out and investigate the RPF. Um, she was she was eventually moved out of her job by Kofi Annan and 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 sort of replaced. Um, and she also sort of you know said that the 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 Americans were sort of um, had supplied the RPF um, with um, monitoring equipment um, mm. that uh, meant that she was never sure that her communications. Uh, were secure, so she couldn't have private um, discussions, that her staff were infiltrated. Uh, and she definitely felt that Washington, you know, as soon as she started talking about RPF investigations, that Washington wanted her gone. Um, so I think that was uh, the result of a, a very, I think there's a very naive view that often comes out of Washington. Washington's very prone to, do, to picking um, good guys and bad guys. Um, it, it certainly did that in Rwanda. It decided very early on that the RPF were the good guys. Uh, that was certainly a view that us journalists, you know, I'm so, I'm one of the people who who also saw them as blameless because we were confronted with these piles of bodies, uh, oh. and it seemed fairly clear who had killed them. Um, but you know, our vision should have been more nuanced, and certainly the vision of the American diplomats and Western diplomats who were briefing us should have been more nuanced because they had more information than than we did. So I, I think America does tend to personalize things and, and does tend to uh, politicize um, things. And then and then the, the law takes place in, in those circumstances. And, and yeah, you're certainly seeing this in Ukraine. I mean, um, uh, the, the presumption always seems to be, you know, that, that only one side will be accused of war crimes um, uh, if there's an international tri tribunal set up in, in Ukraine. But experience shows that in, it, when you have a war zone, both sides do incredibly horrible things to one another. Indeed. Indeed. Jumping back to Rwanda and Mavunyi, can you describe briefly, that is right in the intro of your piece, meeting him for the first time? How was that like? I know you've probably met... Um, men and women who've done some pretty horrible stuff, but how was it to meet him and judging by what he was accused, you know, reading, knowing, knowing what, what he was accused of and what you found and his story, what were your impressions? 
Well, I, I didn't only meet him. I, I met eight, um, eight, uh, the eight men who were in the house in mm. Niamey. And getting into the house was a, quite a um, palaver because we had to go via the police headquarters and then the interior ministry and the foreign ministry and the interior ministry and then the police again. So I was jumping through one hoop after another. And I, I was there for about nine days and halfway mm. through, I thought I'm never going to get to see these guys. And I was in communication with them over WhatsApp, but I thought I'm never going to get to see them. And then suddenly, you know, the police chief of Nyame said, oh, sure, you know, go ahead, go in. <laughs> I'll let them know. <laughs> and so, and it's a nice, you know, quiet villa on a, on a quiet sandy street in, in Nyame. And and it 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 was strange because you know, um, you know I covered the Rwandan genocide and and I um I wasn't there when it was happening but I went in there in July and I saw the aftermath and mm. I you know I I saw the sort of the mass graves and I saw the signs of slaughter in schools and churches where people had gathered together and then you know been attacked. Um, and you know, and you're you're very very aware of that, um, without going into the background of each individual minister. Um, but at the same time, you know, these are guys who who have, you know, in Mavuni's case, um, you know, served his prison time and been released and spent twenty two years separated from his family who live in London, um, and who are aging and have now become this sort of flotsam and jetsam living in limbo that nobody wants to provide with with a home or a, or an ending um so it's it's hard not to feel empathy or sympathy for for them um uh and as you say as a journalist you do you you meet a lot of people yeah. <laughs> Um, and, you know, often you meet people and afterwards um, sort of discover that uh, what they were telling you was not quite true or what they did uh, later on in their lives was um, quite dramatic. Um, so I sort of think my role is not to not to to try not to judge and just sort of feel is this a situation is is this right? Um, and um, I just. I do think that in that particular case, the UN just seems to have washed its hands of of eight guys and is sort of hoping that they'll just go away uh, and disappear. <laughs> if they wait long enough, you know, some of them are definitely going to die off because they they're aging and some of them have health problems. Um, and and um, you know, if I was um, a journalist covering prisons here in the UK. Um, I would want my government to be making dispensations for prisoners who've done their time and 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 are released with anklet bracelets to 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 have a chance to start again, mm. and that's not being granted those guys in Yame. How much of this do you think is administrative uh, politics? Is it combination of both? Is it, do you think the, the 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 people who are left behind to clean this? Uh, tribunal process up do they know what they're doing or do you think this is more of a political problem or is it both uh, I think it's a combination of the two um, I think you know my understanding um, and I didn't cover the ICTI itself I've covered I've focused more on the ICC in the in in the past um, 
is is that there is an inbuilt sort of bias towards prosecution uh mm. in that if, if you know by the time you, you get one of these really high profile there international criminal tribunals tend to be about high profile uh prosecutions and by the time you've you've captured the guy arrested him extradited him you know uh and the human rights groups you know much as i love them are baying for for them to be held to account it, you know the bias is definitely towards prosecution and you know the media you know to which i belong that's what we expect to see um so there's this sort of whole momentum around prosecution and then i i think that you know if someone's acquitted or released on appeal there's really i don't think the institution is particularly interested in what then happens to that person um and um you know uh, the system isn't also designed to oblige any of the member nations that have supported and paid for and funded these criminal tribunals to take these people in um so you know it makes perfect sense that these eight guys don't want to return to rwanda i wouldn't want to in their shoes either uh but uh the un appears to be powerless to persuade france or or britain or canada or america places where they have family and the families have said we want these guys we want them home we'll put you know we'll we'll give them home and hearth and look after them um it seems to be powerless to force those governments mm. to do anything about it and i i do think the media has something you know has some responsibility for that because i can just imagine the kind of headlines that you know the british press or the american press would would be publishing if it sort of you know was leaked that 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 britain is welcoming back you know convicted uh this man convicted of war crimes uh but but why shouldn't they yeah welcome yeah. back he's he's paid his debt to society he has been through the process and you know in the case of Mavonia, he's 69 years older you know it and uh, legally Technically, I guess if if they wanted to make that argument, I mean, you're pushing people into an arbitrary deprivation of nationality, which you're almost making them or have made them can make them stateless people, and that opens the door to a bunch of other human rights violations. Just starting with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which talks about this very issue, and. It's as if it none of this stuff really matters. I mean, the sexiness of it is gone now. The headlines are yeah. over, and the courts are done. And that's something about this issue. You know, we, a lot of a lot of here in the Western Hemisphere, we have uh, a few hot spots: Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, some others. And there's people clamoring for justice. And there was this peace process in Colombia. Um, once the headlines are gone. When the 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 energy or whatever's happening has been achieved, maybe a political outcome that someone's seeking, um, these things fall through the cracks, and it's not just yeah, gonna... absolutely. I mean, I find it very ironic that these men are stranded in Niger at the same time that there's a very very high profile um, case against Felician Kabuga, who mm. was one businessman who's accused of of sort of having financed you know been a fin financier of the militias who committed a, a lot of the massacres um that that's been taking place in europe and um and that's been getting a lot of attention but you know i if you google the um uh the the case of these guys in yame i mean they've they've received you know zero 
media interest mm. because we we like prosecutions you know we we all we all know how courts work and it's the the drama of the court case and there's been sort of a lot written about the, the 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 tracking down and the investigative the investigation that lasted you know several decades <laughs> that you investigators to track down Felician Kabuga, to track down other other members of Javier Imana's sort of uh, army who had fled abroad, hidden themselves, changed their names. And it's fascinating stuff. It makes for a great story. But, you know, it's sexy in media terms. It's not sexy when you've got eight old guys um, sitting in a house in Yame who who are unwelcome everywhere. Mm. But, you know, um, uh, judicial processes and judicial institutions do need to deal with those people and 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 show them some decency and respect. Well, it's maybe going to set up the wrong way with some folks who hear this, but I it puts the UN and all these mechanisms and some of these independent mechanisms, and we'll talk about the ICC in a minute, in a position where just becoming a, a violator itself, you know, the system itself is violating the fundamental rights of other peoples, and that's not what you're supposed to create these organizations to do. You're supposed to have these organizations in place, these these, these mechanisms and ad hoc uh, tribunals to mete out justice, not punish people who have already served their time, for example. You undermine the whole process to begin with. And talking about undermining the process, and we're going to get back to Wanda before we wrap up the show, we're running out of time. We're going to keep going for a little bit. Uh, the ICC is not on the docket today. But you've written about some ICC cases that I find interesting. And mm. I'm not a fan of the ICC. So people who listen to this podcast know. Um, I think it's uh, broken ab initio. I think there's just things there that uh, administratively will not work, legally can't work. And if we're going to have a mechanism like that one, uh, a body like that one, we have to do it right and not do it... Um, the ways we're doing it today, but we're not talking about the ICC today. But you have written about two or three cases that I think yes. are on point. Can you share a little bit with our listeners about those? Yeah, um, I at one stage I actually thought about uh, writing a book about um, the ICC case against Dominic Ongwen, who was a young commander in the Lord's Resistance Army that laid waste to northern um, Uganda. And so um, I went um, to cover the start of his trial. I think that was in, in 2016. And I also went to Gulu in northern Uganda to see how the community there, you know, about the people he grew up with and, and that town and human rights groups there and elders and religious leaders, how they saw the ICC. And it, it was very interesting because, um, you know, there was there was actually a surprisingly absence of of support for the ICC process in Gulu. I, that was what I found. Um, because again, it came down to this fairness issue. Um, uh, because a lot of people were saying, you know, firstly, Ongwen was a child soldier who um, was recruited. I mean, there's dispute whether he was recruited. He was abducted by the LRA and turned mm -hmm. into a fighter. And then became a very, you know, successful fighter and had lots of wives and was sort of respected because he was so ruthless. But he was a child and, you know, impressionable and brainwashed, basically, by Joseph Kony, the head of the um, of uh, the LRA. 
So there's sympathy for him for that reason, and because a lot of children were abducted in, in Gulu, and so people are aware that, you know, that happened to a lot of their children. And, and they've been forgiven and welcomed back into the community, and they've, they've often gone through a whole traditional local process of reconciliation and rehabilitation. And of course, the ICC doesn't do rehabilitation and welcoming people back into the community. That's not the way Western justice <laughs> works. But the other reason was 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 very clear was that they were saying our problems in this area were not just caused by the LRA. Uh, the LRA, yes, they abducted and they raped and and they took people away. But the people who treated us worse were the Ugandan army, which cantoned the area, rounded people up into guarded villages uh, where they were living off rations for years. Uh, often soldiers were uh, would be um, using local girls as prostitutes. Um, uh, the, the, the whole society changed because of the way the Ugandan army fought the LRA. And they feel very, very strongly that the Ugandan army also uh, went in for false flag operations in which people were killed. And it's sort of like, fine, judge Dominic Ongwen, find him, prosecute him, find him guilty. But we want to see Ugandan army commanders in, in court as well in the ICC. Yeah, you know, yeah. And if you're not going to do that, this isn't fair and we don't support it. So that was very interesting in itself. The, the other process which I followed quite closely is I was in Kenya in 2007 when there were extremely violent elections in which basically Kenya, Kenya came very close to civil war. Um, and it was because the elections were rigged by Mwai Kibaki and his administration and you got um, ethnic cleansing, uh, mostly between uh, members of the Kikuyu ethnic community and the Kalenjin community. And repeatedly at that stage, the um, after that had happened and there was reconciliation and Kofi Annan played a role and the African Union also tried to play a role. Um, uh, there was this call from Kenyan lawmakers and MPs who were saying, we have to sort of purge the, the bitterness and the poison, this sort of ethnic toxic hostility that's been left by, by this violence. Um, we have to purge it by having uh, a trial. You know, we have to have trials in, in, in the ICC. So there was a huge enthusiasm. And what was really fascinating to watch was the way in which um, Uhuru Kenyatta, who is, uh, you know, a young politician uh, for the Kikuyu community, son of the founding president of Kenya, and William Ruto, a Kalenjin uh, politician, uh, who were who who were uh, uh, indicted by the ICC for 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 war crimes, then used. Uh, their, uh, you know, the charges that were leveled against them, they they formed an incredibly cynical electoral path, uh, and they campaigned against the ICC, and they managed to get a, a really shockingly large number of African member states to embrace their view of the ICC um, as um, neo-colonialist, a racist organization because it was mostly um, uh, prosecuting Africans um, uh, and their lives. Well, it's, it's, it's kind of the truth. I mean, as far as it prosecuting well, it's, it's Africans. That, it's, it's definitely a truth that, you know, they've mostly been Africans. But yeah. there yeah. were reasons for that because, you know, disproportionately, the countries that were saying uh, that had were very enthusiastic supporters initially of the ICC, governments were saying to the ICC, these are such thorny problems. They go so deep in our societies. We do not have the judicial system that can deal with them. Please help us. And so, so you know, uh, the, these cases that are now being, you know, regarded as racist manifestations, they were being brought because 
African governments were asking the ICC, you know, in do, most do you, parts. Do, do you think the governments punted that? Do you think enough enough steps were taken to try and, you know, my country has invested billions in Africa as far as foreign aid. And a lot of that, some of that money goes to, has gone to build courts and rule of law in these countries. How many decades, what years will it take to build a functioning legal system in the most of these countries that these countries can be proud of? Do well, you think it's even possible? Well, I, I, you know, in Kenya, you've got the, what's the residue of a British judicial right. colonial system, which is, is creaking because it's, it's very, very old and it, and it's underfunded. Yeah. And it would need massive investment. Uh, but, but that, I don't even think that's why all these um, Kenyan lawmakers were saying, you know, let 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 the ICC deal with this um, originally, you know, before they were told that it was a racist court. Um, <laughs> they were yeah. saying they were saying it because they knew that it was absolute, you know, such a hot topic, you know, right. that it, it that any any judicial process was going to un uncover such sort of toxic sort of sensitive, hmm. controversial roles played by so many of their political leaders that they did not want to go there. And so to ask the ICC to deal with it was also a way of kicking it out of the park and just kick it into the long grass. We won't deal with it. The ICC will deal with it. Okay. So so Kenyatta and Ruto then sort of, you know, went full blast. I mean, their entire electoral campaign was more or less built on defying the ICC and presenting it as a white racist plot against you know brave wow Kenyan fascinating African, which was incredibly cynical wow. but because of the sort of ethnic politics and the, the 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 deals that were struck and the fact that this meant that at least the two communities that had been tearing each other's throats out were signing were had agreeing to sort of cohabit in peace they, they did win the next election. And then what you see is this process where witnesses disappear, are threatened. Uh, the people who are supposed to give testimony in the ICC uh, suddenly go, you know, uh, are withdrawing their testimony, uh, are, uh, are leaving, going abroad, never coming back, are being killed. Um, and of course, you know, because the people who were accused of these, this sort of ethnic cleansing that had happened in 2007 are running the country. So they're going to oh, make them Lord. sure that those court cases don't take place. Um, and just recently, uh, a lawyer, you know, who was accused of witness tampering, um, died almost certainly. He was poisoned um, in, in just after William Ruto won the elections. He was poisoned in in Nairobi and and died. Um, so um, you know that whole court case has has sort of just collapsed in into shambles and i think what what that really shows is if if you are going to do uh, this kind of you know restorative justice sort of criminal tribunal you need to do it fast mm. you know it, 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 you cannot have a process that lasts for you know for years and years and years it needs to be quick it should be closer to the you know it it, it shouldn't be at one removed you know away in in western europe with with white uh, lawyers sort of running the show and being paid sort of hefty salaries. Um, it, it needs to be closer to home. It needs to be cheaper. Uh, it, and it needs to be seen as an African solution to an African problem, which is the mantra we're always hearing. Well, you know, the Nuremberg trials and the Tokyo war crimes, a lot of folks forget about the Tokyo war crimes trials. Um, 
barely two years, two to three years. Uh, And and Nuremberg, I think, was just about maybe under a year. A lot of preparation, of course, went into that. And it wasn't, you know, the Nuremberg process wasn't perfect. uh, But it was better than not doing it, folks. I mean, folks who criticized it, I, I, I thought it was for what they did not know at the time and the way it was put together. I, I, I felt and I still think it's one of the most effective and worth studying uh, processes that at least uh, there was that opportunity uh, to air out and meet out some justice, even though maybe it wasn't perfect. I think it worked. And there's a lot of lessons from that. One of them, which Mikel is talking about here, some of these tribunals are out, they're out there for years and they never end. And they have these ad hoc and the residuals and it just never seems to end. And mm. it it undermines, I think, long term uh, rule of law and accountability efforts, and frankly, makes the job of the lawyers that have to do this work, whether you're prosecution or defense, much harder. Especially when there's political tampering with this process, which there is, and uh, we're not going to talk about that today. But let me ask you this: about the the you've seen this from many different perspectives. We tend to see it over here on my end in our organization. People we work a lot with the victim side of this. Um, but the one thing I hear from victims, by the way, all the time, and even here in in Latin America, where we've we've studied this a bit in in Colombia and their transition into peace, and there's very controversial the way that happened, and there's still people who are upset about it. Um, and in places that are grappling with that issue, like Cuba, for example, that there's a lot of folks on the outside who've suffered under that system, and there's people on the inside that want to see some type of transitional justice process. I mean, how important is it, you just said to to do it and not drag it out, but how important is this process to get it done right at the beginning of, let's say, a a transition from conflict? Or should people wait to the stability and do it then? I mean, do you think it matters? Do Do you have to go case by case? From what you've seen in Africa, what would be the ideal time to initiate a process like this? Well, I mean... We have to we have to be real, don't we? And in a lot of countries and a lot of cases, yeah, in theory you'd want to do it quickly, but um, you know, um, because uh, the situation is in flux. Mm. Who who's running the show is not clear. Right. Um, it's particularly um, it becomes the whole question of of, of justice becomes. A, you know, uh, swept up in in often, you know, if people are striking peace deals, um, or, or they they are agreeing to turn blind eyes to atrocities often, um, or, or crimes that were committed, and if you know, if an entire kind of dispensation and cohabitation experiment is based on not bringing people to trial, um, uh, then you you cannot insist on on having having a, a court case. I mean, I, I just ended up reviewing a, a book written by Reed Brody, who used to be Human Rights Watch's guy, and who was very, very involved in bringing Hussein Habre, the Chadian dictator, um, to, to justice in an African um, ad hoc court in, in Senegal, which is where they ended up doing it. It took him years and years and years. And the interesting one of the interesting reasons is why it took him so long is because the, the case could not be staged in Chad because um, Idris Deby you know, who was running the country and had been one of Hussein Abre's military commanders, 
also had a lot of skeletons in his cupboard. And so he wasn't going to let a, a trial take place in which he's saying that Bray's some criminal record was there for all to see because he knew that eventually then it, it would point towards him. So, you know, you have to be realistic uh, uh, at a certain stage. I mean, I find that my sympathies tend towards two, two experiments. I mean, because a lot of this is experimental. Um, I'm, ex I'm, I, I was um, very impressed by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa um, and, and how they went about things because there it wasn't about getting um, prosecutions and, 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 you know, prison terms. It was about getting the truth out there. And so people uh, who had done dreadful things, you know, for the apartheid government were allowed to walk free because they had, in exchange, revealed the truth of what the system had done and what they had done. And I think, you know, that's a service to the community. There were still people who said that it actually, um, you know, uh, deepened the bitterness that was felt mm. in the society. But I, I felt that was the more enlightened way to go about things. Uh, in Rwanda, there was also um, uh, Gachacha uh, right. inside Rwanda itself, which was grassroots um, justice um, delivered at a village level. Uh, in which people um, were allowed to go free if they had taken a part in uh, a part in the genocide, but they would appear before uh, an audience of their peers and say, "I admit, I killed your sister, I killed your brother, uh, I stole your cattle, you know, I slaughtered your grandfather," and then the community accepts that that's a fair rendering, and in return they're allowed to return to their village and live there. The problem with that process is it was undermined from the get-go because the only people going through it were members of the Hutu community accused of killing Tutsis in the genocide. And, um, you know, it didn't include um, soldiers in the RPF or members of the RPF, the new RPF government. Uh, and so again, it was seen as, as biased and one-sided justice. So mm. it, it, it was a brave idea, but I think it's been massively undermined by the way it was implemented. And it's just seen as another form of, of victor's justice. Um, but, 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 you know, uh, overall, if I can just make one point is- Sure. Uh, I'm a European, you know, my mother's Italian. Um, uh, I have spent most of my life before I went to Africa working in a Europe scarred by World War II. Right. And um, if you uh, watch old films in France or old films in Italy, or, or you know, just read the discussion, you would often think that every single member of France, of French society or Italian society, was either in the resistance or in the partisan community, mm. <laughs> in the partisans <laughs> in Italy. And you know, we know this is not the case. Right. Uh, we know that there was a Vichy government in France. We know that there was a fascist government in Italy. <laughs> Benito Mussolini was a very popular leader. Um, and how much, um, you know, how many people were, were brought to book? How many people answered for, for, for what happened in France and Italy uh, after the war? Very few. And I think it's, there's a sort of realism that um, you, you have to be able to continue as a society and necessary forgetting becomes very important. Mm. And less your neighbors will know that you, you know, worked for the fascist government or that you were a member of the Vichy or that you collaborated with the Nazis. But that's just the way it has to be because societies cannot spend 
decades, you know, pouring over their own entrails and hurling accusations at one another. And right. I'm very lucky because I'm half British and in Britain, we were not occupied. So, you know, there's a whole issue of war crimes committed by Churchill's government, you know, to, that's a whole argument to be had. But in my country, because we were not occupied, we didn't have the, that, that experience of members of our own society, um, you know, collaborating with the Nazis or, or, or enforcing um, fascist laws. So we're very, very lucky in that respect, but most of Europe did have those kind of experiences. And yet Europe, you know, has continued and and those societies seem, you know, pretty harmonious. Yeah, no, they, they do. And that's actually the point. And it helps to put in context, frankly, the, the importance if you're gonna do this, you. You should do it right because not only have these people and society suffered, but you're also not allowing this, the nation and the people to heal either. And you're keeping yeah. these, these processes open also comes at a, well, like your article talks about, it, it impacts the real lives of you know people who have families and uh, who can't seem to get peace either. They've served their time. That's what, the, that's what this process, albeit imperfect, decided. And it becomes a political issue that never seems to potentially go away for some and, yes uh, and i uh, just to return to rwanda yes uh, there's a lot of that the government there makes a great play of of ethnic uh, you know harmonization and reconciliation because you know and it's it's now in rwanda you're not supposed to say if you're hutu or you're tutsi it's very you know that's very much frowned upon you're just a rwandan which is great but I don't think there's any genuine uh, reconciliation taking place. Mm. I just think that one part of the community, which is the Hutu community, is being told to shut up um, and, and not complain and is very aware that it hasn't had, uh, uh, you know, that it hasn't been fairly treated in, in the, on these kind of issues. And I think that grievance will, will continue and, and sadly will continue to poison politics in that area. Well, hopefully American and British and other stakeholders can start working on ways to address that so we don't have another problem there um, ever again. So as we're wrapping up, we've run out of time. Uh, Michaela, thanks for joining us. But before we let you go, what words of wisdom? If you have an American policymaker, American audience, why should people with the economy and the world the way it is all this tension happening all over the place. So what, why should folks care about this? You've seen this close up. You've told the story of so many people who go through this and societies that go through this. Why is this important? Why should countries like America, United Kingdom, stay involved in international justice? Why is it that important? Well, I think it goes back to what I said at the beginning, that uh, there is a concern about what, what is called the culture of impunity. And I think, you know, if your whole family has been wiped out by people just down the road, you're never going to forget that. And when your chance comes, you will take revenge. So you have to stop that happening. What I think experience has shown me sort of over the decades of reporting on Africa, but other countries too, is um, if you are going to try and stop that happening, um, through a judicial system, uh, because there are other ways, um, you right. know, try and do it um, so it's local. It doesn't look like it's imposed from the West, that it has local buy-in um, 
um, and that it's swift and above all that it's um, not seen as one-sided. It really has to be uh, seen to be impartial. And that that's the biggest challenge, I think. And then lastly, since you work with a lot of lawyers and I've said this before, for those of us in this space, you know, journalists uh, are um, invaluable partners in this process of international human rights. Sometimes when, especially when we're in a really bad jam in some really tough countries, it's, it's the journalists that help us uh, move product. And ultimately they're also serving uh, communities by reporting on the truth and trying to get to the truth. What message do you have for lawyers who are engaged in this space or maybe who want to get engaged in this space about what have you seen are the positives and the limits of the law in working on some of this difficult area? Well, I'm a journalist, so I love it when lawyers speak to me, <laughs> which, uh, you know, that's the basic requirement, the first one, because often, you know, they won't. Sometimes they can't. Um, but uh, I think uh, lawyers often forget how impenetrable the legal process is to people who aren't legally trained. Um, and and we really, I mean, that's what I've understood by covering inquests and, and trials uh, and all sorts of sort of legal proceedings is you sit there as a member of the media and you sort of think, I have no idea what is going on. And one of the reasons why it's really hard to work out what's going on with the, the, the British system is because it's based on precedent. And precedent is something that an outsider cannot penetrate. You know, when some lawyer is running through, you know, previous case studies which prove why this law can be applied or interpreted in this particular way, it's completely impenetrable to a member mm. of the media. And, and you know, if a, if a journalist is, is baffled, he's just a representative of the public. The public won't get it either. It's not that the journalist particularly stupid. So we need help. We, we need to be guided through this thicket. It, it really is a thicket. I, I think, um, you know, when they put on their, their wigs, which they still do in many Kenyan, mm. in many African countries, with the wig goes the sort of expertise that is, you can't help feeling is sort of designed to prevent members of the public understanding what's going on. Um, and so, um, you know, I think journal, uh, journalists need to be helped through through that um, by lawyers who will sit them down and in, and in very simple terminology explain what has happened and the principles at play because they cannot work it out themselves. Okay. Are we easy to work with, most of us, most of the time? Um, it, it really depends. There's some lawyers <laughs> who love journalists. I'm not saying they're the best lawyers, but there's some who are, <laughs> you know, they like to be in the spotlight and they like to be interviewed. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry to say we cluster around them because we need to be taken by the hand and guided through the system. Um, and, and then you'll get other lawyers who, who, who sort of feel it's a bit beneath them and they, you know, maybe they're a bit suspicious, a bit hostile to the media. Um, but then they, you know, they fail to get their points across. Got it. Well, Michaela, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Before we let you go, we're going to put this link in the program notes. Tell us briefly about your latest book, Do Not Disturb, the story of a political murder and an African regime gone bad. Uh, yes, that's a book that was triggered by the murder in a South African hotel of Patrick Karagaya who was the former head of external intelligence in Rwanda. 
uh, and he was also a sort of de facto press spokesman for President Paul Kagame after 1994, when the Rwandan Patriotic Front seized power. Uh, and he was a very interesting man because he was really, um, he was Paul Kagame's childhood friend. They had been to school together. He had become his head of external intelligence. He knew where all the skeletons were buried. And at a certain stage, he just became very, very alarmed, as did many of his fellow um, uh, fellow Tutsi members of that elite, he became very alarmed by this drift towards one-man rule and this cult of personality and the way in which Rwanda was becoming uh, a sort of um, a dictatorship. Um, um, and he felt that uh, it was becoming far too similar to the regime it had replaced. Uh, so he, he, he fled the country, he set up an opposition movement in exile, um, uh, he he um, he he co-founded that movement with a former member, a former head of the armed forces, a former attorney general, a former head of the uh, ruling party, uh, and and then he was taken out by a squad of killers who were sent from Kigali, almost certainly by Paul Kagame on his orders. Um, mm. uh, and so I think it's a really interesting case because I think there tends to be a, a, there's a tendency to see the Rwandan story as between, you know, Hutus and Tutsis. But what you're seeing is one man emerging who um, uh, is uh, despaired of and seen as a despot by members of his own ruling elite who peel away and go into exile and denounce him and set up opposition parties. And he then sends people out to silence and kill them. And I don't think that story has been told in the West at all. So that's why I wrote the book. Looking forward to reading it. Kagami, of course, is probably not gonna be very pleased with the book or has not been pleased with the book, so. Uh, no, yeah, I'm, I mean, he's um, he's he's furious. Um, I'm constantly reviled on on Twitter. Uh, Rwanda's got a very effective army of trolls who, who sort of call me all sorts of names and they accuse me of all sorts of things. But I did know that was going to happen when I was researching the book. So I sort of just have to grin and bear it and carry on. Well, that's great. Truth telling. What a great profession. Oh, we've been talking with Michaela Wrong. Thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure. I hope you have a, a good rest of the month and uh, you're always welcome to join us and share your stories. Thank you very much, Jason, for hosting this.